that can be found in the inside of your bulletin. This is Luke 12, 49 through 59. Luke 12, 49 through 59. This is Jesus speaking. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky. But why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, Make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. The word of the Lord. Well, back in the day, I used to be somewhat of a camper, being of uh, Boy Scout uh, origins, And uh, as the kids get older, I'm looking forward to doing more and more camping. So I've been slowly reassembling my kit so I'm ready when I go camping. In fact, I'm hoping maybe to do an overnight or something uh, with the boys or even a solo uh, this uh, summer at some point. So I've decided to bring to you some of the critical implements necessary when one goes camping. Okay, the first, of course, is a good knife, okay? Now, a knife is very important because what happens if you're camping and you're charged by a wild boar or a wild rhinoceros, okay? Good looks are not going to fight them off, are they? No, no, it's mano a mano or mano a something with a wild boar. A good knife is critical. But we're not only savages, mind you, okay? The comforts of home are important, so I give you the Thermarest uh, portable pillow, that can be wrapped up into a football size, but when you need a good night's sleep, you just unfold this thing and you lay your head down and all will be well, as the song says, with my Thermarest pillow. Most important, though, is the Bear Grylls fire starter, okay, with SOS symbols on the side, just in case you need them. Okay, the Bear Grylls fire starter You know, where you can get a little light there and you have a little tinder or char cloth. And before you know it, you can have a blazing flame possibly engulfing you and killing you in a matter of minutes uh, if you don't know what you're doing. But the Bear Grylls fire starter is extremely important. You know, probably the Bear Grylls fire starter is the most important thing. When you talk about survival, we think about you can live without water for a certain period of time. Uh, You know, we can live without food for a longer period of time, but the most important number in terms of survival is 98.6. You cannot maintain your body temperature, you will die. And so fire is important because fire is life. Fire brings light. It brings heat. It brings energy. 
But we also all know the dangers of fire, don't we? Fire can also bring death. Who hasn't seen on the news a picture of a raging forest fire or you hear the sirens of the, of the fire engines going to a certain place and you see this building engulfed in flames. Such power, such destructive power when it's not controlled. We all know the story of the fire that started from a little kid who starts something that is way out of his control that quickly overtakes the situation. Jesus speaks in this passage about coming to cast fire. Certainly seems a different tone of voice from the picture that society gives the meek and mild Jesus. No, I've come to cast fire and would that it were already kindled, says Jesus. Jesus has come to cast this fire and based on this passage, it's very clear that this fire is going to affect everyone. This fire is going to bring division. This fire is going to bring death. And this fire is going to bring life. When we're done with this, we'll go eat a meal somewhere, probably at home or in a restaurant. And that meal will most likely have been cooked because the fire kills germs. It purifies. There seems to be some sort of purification that is going to happen, that Jesus is going to bring. The world must have fire. Jesus must kindle it for there to be life. And how we respond to Jesus' ministry determines whether this fire will rebirth us or ultimately destroy us. The message of my sermon is quite simple. That if we embrace the fire of Christ's love, we need not fear the flames of his judgment. So the question we have before us is, how do we embrace the fire of Christ's love? Point number one, we must rest in the fire of his grace. God came, gave, came to bring a fire of life, not just of death. We must rest in the fire of his grace. Number two, we must live in the light of his signs. We must see the signs so that we know the truth of what he has done, of what is coming. And then finally, we must carry the torch of his judgment. God has called us to be light bearers in the world. And surely we must take this responsibility seriously. So let's begin with number one. We must rest in the fire of his grace. Luke 12, 49, Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. So we see that Jesus tells us the purpose of why he's come. Not simply to be a good teacher, to give a couple of Aesop's fables types of sayings that will be helpful to us. No, to cast fire. So what does it mean when Jesus said, I came to cast fire? We must think of the first place where we hear Jesus and fire mentioned. And it's actually in the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist spoke and said, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And so he's, we see here that he's talking about a fire that is going to come to people. This, we hear this term of wheat and chaff and we see this throughout the scriptures where he's talking about people. 
He's talking about a fire of destruction. But he's also talking about a fire of purification. As God will bring a judgment upon the world. That there will be a judgment of people. A judgment of destruction for those who do not follow Christ. Who do not claim him as Lord. Who do not trust in him as Savior. It's a fire of destruction. But it's also a fire of purification. In the Old Testament, one of the last verses in the Bible, Malachi 3.2. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. The fire is, is uh, described as that of a launderer's soap. He will refine and purify the Levites. Now the Levites are the people of God. This fire is not a fire of judgment and destruction, but a fire of purification. And the result of that is then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. In other words, this fire will bring a righteousness, a holiness, a purification of a sinful people, of God's people. We see that Jesus says that he comes to bring this fire and he longs for it to be kindled. Strange statement, Jesus longs for this fire, this destructive and purifying fire. How can he long for this fire? I think the reason we don't fully understand that is we do not realize what an affront sin is to God. God is described in the Bible by many different words. But the one word described in three words successively to really communicate who God is is holy, holy, holy. God is pure and set apart. In fact, Habakkuk says, your eyes are too pure to look upon evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. He is a righteous and good and holy and peace-loving God. And he has created a world that was designed to be that way. Remember? When all with creation was done, God said what? That it is good. Indeed, it's very good. Why would a holy God not create a world and a universe that mirrored his character? But it's clear that we can see just by turning on the TV for a second, maybe even looking at our hearts, that the world is not pure. Rather, the result of the world is the human race that has rebelled against God, has communicated to him, we don't want you to be our king, our Lord. We will live in our own way. And we have rebelled against God. And we have sinned against Him. And the nature of who we are is corrupt. All of the things that we see in the world are manifestations of a heart that does not desire to follow God. And so we think of things as small as a white lie or maybe an impatient thought toward our spouse, and we don't think much about it. But it offends God's nature to the highest degree because He's altogether holy 
And so even the smallest sin is nauseating and an offense to God. Imagine your house, which you love and have taken time to furnish and clean, and somebody walks into it and starts marking up your walls and throwing trash around and disregarding it. How would you feel? Would you be angry? Imagine how God feels about his creation. See, this is why we see Jesus in the temple. And he goes into the temple. And he goes insane. And starts turning over the tables. And what does he say? How dare you turn my father's house into a market? As it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus is zealous for his father and for his father's house and has come to make all right, to end this injustice and impurity. There must be a cost for the sins of the world. But how is Jesus to do this? Verse 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus uses a second metaphor, the first fire for the world, but the second baptism for himself. Now, we all know the term baptism, don't we? It's being baptized into Christ. In fact, when, if you want to become a member of Redeemer Presbyterian, we ask you the question, have you been baptized? And if you're, the answer is no, we make sure you're baptized before because that is one of the requirements of membership. Well, what if we were to ask the question, Jesus, have you been baptized? Jesus would say yes and no. See, Jesus is saying there is a baptism that I have to undergo. Yes, he's been baptized. You remember that interaction with John the Baptist where Jesus comes to him and says, I need you to baptize me. And John says, absolutely not. But Jesus says, let it be so. But that's simply a sign, a sign of identification of Jesus with man. No, there is a baptism to undergo. The word baptize, the verb baptize, if you see it in the New Testament, means to be baptized. Imagine that. But if you look at its meaning outside of the New Testament, the word baptize means for one thing to overwhelm the other. To overwhelm it. There's illustrations if you see this word in the ancient Greek where someone is bleeding and they cut their hand and they put their hand in the water and the blood as it pours out into the water overwhelms the water. The water doesn't overwhelm the blood. No, the blood overwhelms the water. One nature over the other. Jesus is saying, I need to be baptized. I need to be overwhelmed first. With what? With blood. With sin. And judgment. Jesus is heading toward a baptism and it's on the cross. As he's overwhelmed by the sins of the world. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck, says the psalmist. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. 
Great is my distress, says Jesus, until it is accomplished. Jesus is going to be overwhelmed by sin so that his people might be purified. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But to those who believed in him, who trust in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. As Titus 3.5 says, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, who he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Jesus comes to bring the fire of destruction and the fire of purification. And so there is this division. Verse 51, do you think I've come to bring peace on earth? No. I tell you, but rather division. This whole notion in Christmas where you see the Christmas card, peace on earth, goodwill to men, is not the complete story, is it? Jesus did not come to bring peace. He came to bring division. But he did come to bring peace on earth, goodwill to men on whom his favor rests. And so at the end of the day, there are two groups of people. Those who embrace his lordship, who are willing to be overwhelmed by his salvation, and those who reject it. And the closer and closer that Jesus gets to the cross, the more and more Jesus becomes a magnet, repelling some, attracting others. Judas despairs. Peter repents. One robber blasphemes. The other confesses. Jesus came that the thoughts of people and what they have of God would be revealed. And so they will be divided. Father against son. Son against father, mother against daughter. The closest relationship. We have our own baptism to undergo. And we must be overwhelmed. But there are only two choices in the end, my friends. Death or Christ. Do you know that our planet is protected by fire? It's the atmosphere that surrounds the earth. We're continually pummeled by space debris, asteroids that are coming from space, but very, very few of them ever hit the ground. And the reason is because of the atmosphere. See, in space there's no atmosphere, so they're hurtling with unbelievable energy. But when they hit the atmosphere, the friction in the atmosphere backs up, if you will, in front of the asteroid, creating an intense heat up to 3,000 degrees that burns almost everything before it gets to the ground. And so as man was trying to figure out how to go into space and return, they had the question, how do we pass through the fire? They came up with something, a mineral called kynite, which is actually the largest kynite mine is in Farmville, Virginia. And you know the uh, Cavalier Hotel used to be owned by the Dixon family, who are the owners of the kynite mine. It was sold recently. See, kynite's an amazing mineral because when it's heated, it expands. It increases in its volume, if you will, and it absorbs heat and takes it away. 
And so during the Apollo space program, they decided to coat the, uh, the capsules in kinite, particularly the heat shield. And so they'd angle the heat shield at just the right time. So when the reentry had to happen, when the atmosphere threatened to overwhelm and burn the capsule, the kinite would stand in its place and would rather absorb the heat to itself and burn off with it, allowing the spaceship to pass through the atmosphere safe to earth. You see, my friends, we have to choose our fire. All will be made right in the end. God's holiness demands it. We all have a re-entry when we come into the presence of God. Our life and our sins will be exposed. But a heat shield has been created. The baptism of Jesus Christ. He said, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God. There is a fire of his love that he has forged that is an impenetrable wall against judgment. And so you have to choose. Do I submit to his fire or do I submit to my own? Do I submit to the, the fire of judgment? A time is coming. So rest in the fire of his grace. The baptism that he underwent, he underwent for you, the people who trust in his name. This brings me to my second point, that we must live in the light of his signs. He also said to the crowds, when you see a, crowd, a cloud rising in the east, you say it once. A shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say it's scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? See, back in the day, there were no zealous weathermen. There was no weather underground on your app, on your phone. It was an agrarian society. The people were in touch with the environment, and they learned to heed the signs because there was danger when they didn't. If you were fishing out on the Sea of Galilee and were caught out there or caught out in the field in a dangerous storm, the flash flooding. And Jesus is saying, you understand how to do that. But you're acting like you don't understand how to interpret the present time. See, that's the, what the word hypocrite means. It literally means in the Greek, actor, impersonator. People who are trying to fool someone by putting on a mask. Now, of course, the question we have to ask is, who are they trying to fool? Jesus is saying, you're fooling yourself. You're acting to yourself because you see the signs and refuse to believe them. See, what Jesus is saying is there is ample data all around you, Israelites, to understand what is going on, and yet you refuse to believe. Remember, all of Israel has been building up to this very point. God appeared to the Israelites. He chose them. He gave them the law. 
He gave them sign after sign. The Passover lamb, so they would know the lamb when they saw him. The temple, so they would know the true temple. The sacrifice. Isaac. It goes on and on and on. All of history has been leading up to this time where Jesus stands up and says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. They're overtones of the jubilee when all is made right. You know, this is the only time in history where God walks the earth for three years, touching and interacting with people. And these people have had the opportunity to see his miracles, his words, which are still considered the greatest ever, his life. If you ask anyone, believer or not, who is the greatest life that has ever lived, Every single list will always come back with Jesus Christ if they're intellectually honest. His resurrection, which is well attested. All of the signs and evidence are there right in front of their face. And yet they refuse to believe. Notice how Jesus is moving through the book of Luke from invitation to indictment. Because the problem is not the sign. The problem is not that they don't recognize the signs. The problem is not that they don't even want the cure. The problem is they don't like the diagnosis. That they are sinners in need of a savior. That they are not God. I think of the greatest example of this hypocrisy. Judas Iscariot. Anybody name any of your kids Judas, by the way? It's not a popular name. If you're looking through the name book, who should we call our kid? You know, Reagan, Judas. No, it's not there. You don't even call your dog Judas, do you? Here's a person who lives three years in the presence of God. Seeing him and hearing him. And at the end of the day, decides all he's worth is 30 pieces of silver. No, the problem is not the evidence. The problem is the diagnosis. Well, what about us? We have his Bible. You can go to just about any hotel in America and find one of these. We have his word. In fact, the book of John says that these things were written. There's so much more that could be written. But these things are written that you may know that Jesus is the Christ. And that you may have life in his name. You say, I don't have Jesus. We have everything that he said that we needed to hear. And his word is living and active. In the United States, we have the ability to openly go to church. To hear the word of God. We have the benefits of history and archaeology. Which continue to affirm the veracity of the scriptures. We have science. Listen, the Big Bang, my friends, even for non-believers, the British physicist P.C.W. Davis, the Big Bang, rep Bang represents the creation event, the creation not only of all matter and energy in the universe, but also of space-time itself. In other words, something came from nothing. 
Even the atheist philosopher Kai Nielsen says, suppose you suddenly hear a loud bang and you ask me what made that bang. And I reply, nothing. It just happened. You wouldn't accept that. In fact, you would find my reply quite unintelligible. And yet that is what people who don't believe in God do. How about the fine-tuning of the universe? Stephen Hawking has estimated that if the rate of the universe's expansion one second after the Big Bang had been smaller by even one part in 100,000 million million, the universe would have recollapsed into a hot fireball. But it just happened to be right. Common sense shows that there must be a creator, that we all die, that there must be a heaven, there must be a judgment, or there is no purpose or meaning. There must be a solution of sin. The issue, my friends, is not the evidence. The issue is we don't like the diagnosis. The famous British philosopher Bertrand Russell was, was once asked what he would say if he found himself before God on Judgment Day and God said to him, why didn't you believe in me? Russell shot right back, not enough evidence, God. Not enough evidence. But you see, Russell doesn't understand that he will have no voice at judgment. For it is his life who will be on trial. There's no point arguing at that point because enough evidence has been given. And so, my friends, we must live today in light of the signs. We must see the signs. You are here. You've heard his word. You have his evidence. The beauty of the gospel is God not only gives the diagnosis, but he gives the cure with the diagnosis. For the Son of Man did not come into the world, but to condemn the world, but to save the world. That's why it's called good news. And so we can take off the mask. We can recognize the reality that we are sinners, that we are rebels, that we live as hypocrites. We can embrace the grace of God. We can rest in the fire of His purification. Because of His love, we are not consumed. For His compassions never fail. They're new every morning. If you are a Christian, if you already rest in His grace, you can live in the signs. Because all around there is evidence of God's glory and goodness. The world is speaking to you. I love you. God is great. If I lift my head from my personal digital assistant and look at the sky and look at the trees and look at people and listen to his voice, suddenly the world is a love song where I'm able to live with constant reminders of the grace of God and that I not need fear the flame of his judgment because I've embraced the fire of his love. Have you taken off the mask, non-Christian? Have you embraced the fire of his love? This brings me to my final point. We must carry the torch of his judgment. 
Jesus finishes with this comment, as you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and he hands you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you're never getting out until you've paid the last penalty. There is a judgment that we are moving forward to. One of the signs that we need to understand the realities that common sense dictate is that we cannot continue to live as if we live forever. We're heading toward a judgment. We're walking there right now. And we don't know when that judgment is going to be. My friends, life is so fragile. It's here today and it's gone in an instant. It's a blessing and a gift. But it's an opportunity to be right with God. I remember a story I heard of three devils who were busy tempting their particular person they'd been assigned to to make sure that they never received Christ. And they went to talk to their senior devil to give their strategy of how they were going to make sure that those people would never, ever come to Christ. The first devil said, I will tell him that there is no God. The senior devil said, no, that will not work. God has already planted in their hearts the knowledge and they know that there is a God. No. The second said, I will tell them there is no judgment. The senior devil said, no. They already have an impending sense of judgment. As much as they try to look to the side, to not think about it, it's always there in the back of their mind. The third devil thought for a while. And then he said, I know what I will say. I will say there is no hurry. And the senior devil thought to himself for a while. And he said, yes. That will work. The whisper of the world says there is no hurry. Put this off. Thinking about it later. But Jesus says you're walking there right now. With your accuser. Settle things before. There's someone who's not in this story but who is certainly there later in the rest of the scriptures. For Jesus said to us to go and proclaim the good news, to make disciples. And so as 2 Corinthians 5 says, since we know what it is to fear God, we seek to persuade men. We're God's ambassadors, ambassadors as though God was making his appeal to you through us. We implore you therefore on God's behalf. Be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See there is that poor soul. And the accuser. And us. Who have the privilege and responsibility. To carry the torch of God's judgment. To come alongside them. To show them the reality. That life is fragile. That there is a great savior. 
that you can be made right with God right now. God came to set the captive free. So my friends, we must live in light of the signs of the love of God. But we must also live with sobriety in light of the judgment of God. God has put you in your particular circle with friends and family that you might come and shine the light, the torch of the impending judgment. God wants to use you and me to be a difference maker. How can we neglect such an opportunity? God has been gracious to you and me. If you are a believer, if you have submitted to his grace, we need not fear the flame of judgment for we are encircled by the fire of Christ's love. But let us be a church who is not afraid to go out into the world and to proclaim the gospel for we have the truth. It has set us free and God will use it to set others free. What a great privilege. What a great responsibility. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your baptism that you accomplished and you have unfolded us who choose to follow you with the fire of your grace. Lord, help us to rest in it. Lord, you have purified us and you continue to purify us. And we will be pure at the judgment. We need not fear the future. Lord, but give us a heart that longs for our unbelieving brothers and sisters. Lord, help us to the uncomfortable task of showing them that all is not well until they rest in Christ. Give us the urgency that you showed in this passage.